Good morning. Good morning. It is um, pretty standard, I think, for us um, in our modern day and age in 2019 to expect to have to pay or indeed to have to earn our way in to an institution or to an event or to a club that we want to be a part of. Do you know if you have got children or grandchildren or, or whoever, if you yourself have been to university, you need to meet the requirements set out by the university in order to get into your course. If you um, are told that you need to two A's and three B's to get into the course of your choice and you get three C's and a D, then there's no way that you're going to get into that course. Equally, if you want to go to um, a concert or indeed a sporting event, you cannot simply show up and say, let me in. You need to have paid your money, you need to have got your ticket, and you need to show up with your ticket and for them to say, you know, this person has has earned his way in. This person is justified coming into this because he's parted with the money in order to um, get in through the gate. Indeed, when we go traveling, you know, you need to take your passport with you, you need to take your visa with you. We need to take our passport and our visa to more countries very soon, but we will need to take our passport and our visa with us to justify the, uh, you know, or to to convince people that we are who we say we are and that we've not got anything in our history or in our past that that, um, means that we should not be allowed into that country. And when we try and apply this kind of logic, I think that we are, are, are all too um, willing and all too ready to kind of apply this kind of logic to um, the Christian gospel because our whole world is built on this idea that if you want into something, if you want to be a part of something, if you want to, be, um, um, if you want to subscribe to, to the things that, that a group of people subscribe to, then you need to, be, um, you need to earn your way into whatever that is. And we try and apply this logic to the Christian gospel, and and the truth is that it does not work. We cannot look at the Christian gospel in the way that we look at other worldly institutions or things, because the world's logic does not apply in the same way. Because as with all things, the truth and the reality of the gospel turns everything on its end, turns everything upside down. We cannot apply external logic or a worldly pattern of reason to the gospel because the truths that are contained in the Bible are beyond the full comprehension of creation. And we are only granted, I think, this side of heaven, the smallest sliver of insight into the great things that God has done, the great things that he is doing, and the great things that he will continue to do in our world today. So we cannot possibly take our experience and apply it to the truth of the gospel. And, and, and so often I think that we, are, we, we, we succumb to the temptation when we um, read um, of what Jesus has done for us and we, we, we read this and we think, you know, oh, but I have to do something in order to earn my way in. There must be something for me to do right here today, something which can be measured, something which can be seen, something which can be kind of um, um, some practical in order for me to demonstrate my worth or in order for me to demonstrate that I am good enough to be worthy of this salvation. But when you read the gospel, when we read a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we see that this is not the case. And actually, if you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling with this, if this is something that you have struggled with um, in the past, if this is something that, that, that you, you, you kind of um, really find difficult to get your head around, then um, you are not alone. I've got a lot of sympathy for you because very often I find myself in a position where I struggle to get my head around it as well. Because I so often approach it with this worldly logic and with this kind of worldly reasoning that I've outlined. 
But I hope this morning that you're in the right place because this is exactly what Paul is laying out before the Ephesian church in verses 1 to 10. And he does so because Ephesus was really no different from any other kind of contemporary city that we might have gone to or that we might see in our world today. For those of you who were here a few weeks ago, we were preaching on Acts chapter 9, and we saw that as Paul and the apostles were in, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 19, sorry, we saw that as Paul and the apostles were in Ephesus, that Ephesus was a city that was bound and was slave to the prevailing culture of the time. They, they, they produced idols of the goddess Artemis, and um, when, when Paul and the apostles went and preached the gospel, went and preached the, the, um, the truth of who uh, Jesus was and the, truth, the true nature of God, um, we see that when we scratch below the surface just a wee bit in Ephesus, that actually their goddess was not Artemis, but their goddess was all the worldly things that we have come to see as idols today. Money, power, prestige, authority, fame. All of these things were really the idols of the day. So we can see that actually Ephesus was not any different from any city or any culture of our own age. Sure, it might have looked a wee bit different, but when you scratch below the surface, the same pulls, the same draws, the same pushes are the same things that um, pull and push and draw us today. The Ephesians found their identity in their idols. Now, they said that this was the, the, the goddess Artemis, but really, as we've seen, it wasn't. And this is so often the case when we replace the creator of the universe and we replace God with our own man-made idols, then we see actually that these idols continue to demand more and more and more of us. They're never satisfied with the things that we offer. They demand more time. They demand more money. They demand more energy. All without really offering anything of any great worth or significance in return. Our idols demand that we earn their attention, that we earn our way into their seeming good graces without actually offering anything in return, without offering anything freely in return. And and the expectation of the Ephesians would have been, naturally, I think, to ask how they could earn their way into favor with this God that they had converted to. Those converts in the early Ephesian church would have wanted to ask them um, how they could earn their way into the good graces, how they could um, increase their standing with and before God, pretty much because every religious tradition up to this point had been um, laid out in this pattern. The actions and the, the, the things that you did here on this earth allowed you better standing or allowed you better, um, um, uh, you know, allowed you to enter more into the presence of whatever deity you threw yourself before. You had to do things in order to earn their favor. And in fact, you know, we could see that that Judaism was particularly guilty of this, I think, not not more so than anybody else, but just in our own tradition, we see that Judaism was particularly guilty of this because there was a Jewish expectation of upholding the law, and that was the means by which you could guarantee that you were okay with God. If you, if you sinned or if you um, did something that went against God's will, then you had, there was an animal that could be sacrificed and you would have to go and do that in order to um, make sure that you were okay with God. And if you didn't do that, or until such time as you did that, you were on a bit of a sugarly peg. And we're all too ready, I think, to fall into this trap today. We're all too ready to, to, to um, um, adopt this, this idea or this mindset that we can offer something which allows us to curry favor with God And as a result, 
That I, I think that we, 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 we fall into this trap because it allows us some sense of comfort. It allows us the, the idea that we are in control, that we can achieve the thing that God is offering. But as we look at the Bible, as we look at the fullness of Scripture, actually we see that, that the Bible is pretty clear about the nature of humanity. At its foundation, it says actually there is nothing that we can offer, there is nothing that we can present. There is nothing within us which offers anything of any worth or any goodness before God. In fact, the Bible does say to us that there is nothing that we can do that can change the condition of our lives. It says that we are all sick and dying in sin and we have no way of remedying ourselves. It says that we're all in chains with no way of freeing ourselves. It says that we're all blind with absolutely no way of restoring our own sight. And as we see in our passage this morning, when we come to terms with the reality of the upside-down nature of salvation, when we come to terms with the upside-down nature of the redemption of God in our lives and in our experience, the fact that we cannot possibly earn our way to a better standing before God does not actually matter. Because as Paul seeks to explain to the Ephesian church, he does so by drawing on the fullness of their lives He draws the distinction of their lives before they were in Christ, when they were in Christ, and then subsequently what that means to be in Christ in their lives. And this is how we'll look at this passage. So first of all, in in verses 1 to 3, our life without Christ. Paul starts chapter 2 to the Ephesians by drawing a, a distinction between those who are converted to the faith and those who aren't. You know, but, but he does this, he draws this distinction not by saying to those in the church, you know, it's just as well you're in the church just now. Do you know, it's just as well that you were good enough to get in because, do you know, nobody else made the cut. In, in verses 1 to 3, Paul makes sure that the Ephesians know that at, at one point, prior to their conversion, they were absolutely no different from those who don't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Indeed, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Our lives were full of the same trappings and the same failings and the same desires as, those, as the rest of those out there in the world today. And Paul is saying that there is absolutely no room, there is no basis for pride or for status within the church. Because at one point, we were no different. We cannot look at the fact that we are converted. We cannot look at the fact that we were saved. And we cannot say, you know, oh, I I deserve this. I'm actually, I'm I'm, I'm okay. I'm, 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 you know, pretty good. So I, I deserve to be saved. And that is the same for us today. Do you know, whether, whether you're sitting here and whether you have known the Lord for 60 years or whether you have known him for six hours, we were all once in the same boat. We were all once trapped by our sin un- and unable to do anything about it. And in fact, this is quite possibly the singular condition, I think, which defines all of human existence. It doesn't matter how much I think I'm going in the right direction or heading to to the right destination or to the right place. It doesn't matter how much I've convinced myself I'm going in the right direction. If I'm not heading the right way, then there's nothing I can do about it. For example, if I wanted to go to um, Aberdeen um, and I get on a train 
that, that, that is taking me to London, then it doesn't matter how much I think I'm going to Aberdeen. I'm still going to London. It does not matter if the train that I'm on is the most comfortable train, the most luxurious train. It doesn't matter if I'm on the train to London with hundreds of other people. I'm still not going to the destination that I, was, that I wanted to go to. And actually, there is nothing that I can do, there is nothing that I can offer that is going to change the direction of that train. The only person who can affect the direction of travel is the driver, and so it is with God. Because we hope that, I I trust that, by virtue of the fact that we know Christ, by our real and lived experience of him, by the fact of our knowledge of what he's done for all of creation and dying on the cross and rising three days later, we hope and we trust and we expect that there will be a difference in our lives that will be seen by others. The world will present one way of behavior, one, one type of ethics, one type of morality, and one type of kind of code of conduct to us. But the Word of God offers something different, directed by His Holy Spirit, and calls us to an entirely different way of living that cuts across the way that society would have us live. And we do, we often see this in the world around us. You know, we often hear people saying, you know, well, God made me this way, so, so He must want me to live this way. You know, we see this particularly in relation to to sexual morality. But humanity, at its very base, has a tendency towards destructive behavior. None of us would imagine to, or would would kind of purport to sit here and say, you know, well, you know, God has has made me, um, or, you know, by by virtue of my humanity, I am naturally aggressive. Or I am, um, um, you know, dishonest by, 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 you know, just naturally. Or I'm naturally a serial adulterer and that must be the way that God wants me to live. We would never purport to sit here and to say these things. But instead, what Paul is saying to the Ephesians is actually this is how our lives used to be. This is the way that we used to live. They and we followed the ways of our world, but now, as a result of what Christ has done, we are able to enjoy the fullness of life and Christ. And we're able to enjoy the fullness of life in Christ, not because of the great things that we have done, not because of any good deeds of our own, not because these things have given us a right to come, but because in verses 4 and 5 of God's great love for us, because he is rich in mercy and has made us alive in Christ. And we see here in these verses, I think, almost the full, if not the, the shortest summation of the gospel. We see in the first two words of, a, of verse 4. He says, but because. Some versions read, but now. And I think that these two words demonstrate to us the ultimate and complete transformation which has come over us as a result of the power and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That despite all that we've done in verses 1 to 3, we are granted new life in the grace and in the forgiveness of God's incredible but because in verse 4. This is the parallel. You know, we've got darkness and despair on one hand and we've got new life and hope on the other. Because when we read this but because we are get, we're granted an insight into the moment on the cross where Christ takes on the enormity of humanity's sin where he receives the punishment which has been reserved for us and subsequently changed the trajectory 
of all of creation forevermore. This is the moment in verse 6 when we were raised out of the blackness of our own spiritual death, out of the chains of our sin, out of the blindness of our hearts, and we were granted new life, new freedom, new sight. This is the moment when we were raised to glory with Christ. And again, this is not because we deserve these things. In fact, it's just the opposite. God did not do these things in order to show how good we are, but he did these things in order to show how good he is. Do you know, I was trying to think of, of, of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the best way of explaining this, and, and I don't think I've, I, I've settled on it, you know, but if you imagine that you're reading a book and you get halfway through, and you know, you're thinking, this book's pretty good. I, I, I'm enjoying this. But oh, actually, do you know what? I better stop now before I, before I get any further, because it might go downhill after this point. If you stopped reading the book, you'd never see the story reach its completion. You'd never see it come to its full conclusion. The story would end and there would be all these loose ends which had started but had never been finished. And this is what Paul is saying. Verses 1 to 3 and the way that our lives used to be is like reading that book up to the halfway point and then stopping. But we see in verse 4 when God says, but because, or when Paul says, but because, but because of all the good things that God has done, because of the, the, his, his desire to save us, he has completed the story. This is where we were before we, sa- we were saved by God. And only once we have a vision of the full and the complete story can we come to understand something of what it means to be in Christ. And Paul does go on to that in verses 8 to 10. Because we can only understand our need for Christ's forgiveness and grace if we understand the nature of humanity as being inherently sinful. We can only grasp the fullness of what took place on the cross if we understand that we ourselves are especially at our absolute foundation sinful. We read in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 that everyone is like one who is unclean, that all our good deeds are like filthy rags. The best that we can offer amounts to nothing in the eyes of God. And we hear this, and you might think that this sounds incredibly depressing. You might think, you know, what what is the point? But I think actually we need to change our perspective in relation to this, and we need to see that actually it's not depressing. On the contrary, what Paul is placing in front of the Ephesians and before us is so incredibly free and that we should be rejoicing every moment that we remember it. Because we see that, our responsib- that the responsibility for our salvation and the responsibility for forgiveness and redemption lies not with us. It doesn't lie with me or it doesn't lie with you or it doesn't lie with anybody. It only lies with God. And we cannot under any circumstances earn our way into the kingdom of heaven. And as I've said, you know, I think that we are particularly guilty of, of falling into this mindset, of falling into this trap. Maybe not any more so than any other time in, in, in the history of the church. But, um, you know, because we are here today, you know, and because of our experience of society and culture and everything else, we are particularly guilty of falling into this trap of thinking, I need to earn my way. Do you know, 
And this normally um, um, is, is summed up with, with saying something like, you know, I'm saved, therefore I need to do good works in order to continue earning favor with God so that I can make sure absolutely 100% that I am saved. And only as long as I am continuing to do good works am I saved. As soon as I stop doing good works, then ooh, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I stand. But instead, actually, we need to think about this the other way around. We have been saved, and there is nothing that can add or detract from that. And as such, we do good works in order to demonstrate God's work of salvation in our lives. That's what it says in verse 10. But I think even more than this, more than the effect that it has on us as individuals, salvation by grace rather than works opens up the gates of glory to all. It is by faith alone that we are saved. The only thing that I can contribute to my salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. Yet indeed, faith is not an activity that we do in order to make ourselves acceptable. I do realize this morning that it's, um, it is difficult to convey the fullness of what Paul is explaining here. There, there, are, there are so many pitfalls that we can succumb to. It's all too tempting for us to view a passage like this through worldly eyes, trying to work out what our role and our part to play in all of this is. But at its foundation, I, I think that we need to understand just two things. Firstly, and, and I think some of us maybe need to hear this this morning, okay, Firstly, we are saved by faith alone. Nothing can detract or add to the salvation that we already have in and through Jesus Christ. Okay? We are saved by faith alone, and nothing can add or detract to the salvation that we already have in and through Jesus Christ. But secondly, the grace which, by, by which we are saved demonstrates to us the fullness of God's love. It's a grace and it's a love that welcomes everyone in. It's a grace and a love which doesn't, you know, simply add some sort of general spiritual enrichment to our lives as if that was all we needed God for. But it's a grace that completely changes our lives. It changes how we interact with the world. It changes how we understand our place in God's master plan, which stretches all the way from creation right the way through to Revelation. And it is in this grace that we all stand as people who have been convicted by God to respond to the things of God, to the eternal glory of God. That having been made alive in Christ, we are now seated with Christ. And I think that this passage offers a word of encouragement to those of us who struggle to take firm grasp of our salvation. If we feel that we are on a dodgy footing, if we ever ask, you know, how can I be sure that I am really saved? Well, our passage tells us this morning, we are saved by grace alone, no more and no less. But our passage, I think, is also a word of exhortation. We are saved by grace alone, no more and no less. And to those of us who are tempted to think that it is by our own means that we are saved and redeemed, to those of us who, who are so ready to busy ourselves with um, um, doing things in order to make sure that, 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 that I'm keeping God happy or that I'm, I'm you know, um, um, trying to make sure that, that people in church are seeing that I'm, I'm okay and I'm, I'm, I'm a good Christian, whatever that is, we need to hear again and again and again and again that there is nothing that I can do or offer which adds to the things that God has already granted. 
He's prepared each one of us to do good works to his glory. But this doesn't mean that we need to be standing on that religious treadmill, constantly striving for something that we, on our own strength, can never possibly hope to manage or achieve. Christ has done it all through his grace. And we need to hear that again today. Amen.